Jeff Vanderklut, welcome to the new school. Thank you, Michael Lerner. So we're recording this on a beautiful uh, February day in 2013 at Commonweal in Bolinas, but you recently moved up to Whidbey Island uh, off the coast of Seattle from Napa. Um, let's start. Tell us what you're doing up there. Sure. Well, although I've officially changed my permanent address to Langley, Washington only a week and a half ago, I've been traveling back and forth between the Pacific Northwest and the Bay Area, and especially the Napa Valley for three years. Uh, a variety of projects that actually all connect to one another, but increasingly uh, it was clear that my projects uh, up north were mm, really booming, so to speak, and uh, I'm now the executive director for New Stories, which is an educational nonprofit based on Whidbey Island, and I'm doing that three quarters time, which leaves me one quarter time to make mischief. And what is New Stories? New Stories. Okay, so uh, in 2000, Bob Stilger founded New Stories right around the time of Y2K uh, to advance knowledge about resilient communities and alternative narratives, and as kind of a boutique nonprofit for him primarily. And a few years ago, Linnea Lombard, uh, a friend of Bob Stilger's and, and mine, uh, came in and it became her boutique for a few years. So the website that you see now at newstories.org is, is looking at the archetypal nature of story and the deep stories and the big stories that hold us and shape our sense of possibilities. And in the process of exploring these deep stories, we discovered a number of great transition narratives, working with Dwayne Elgin, more archetypal stories that have great relevance today uh, during this time of profound transition. And we started to attract a number of projects that uh, relate to these deep stories. And one of the, the big stories emerging now is thriving and resilient communities. There's a lot of energy around the transition towns movement. There's an emerging thriving communities movement, in a sense based on Whidbey Island, but radiating out all throughout the Cascadia bioregion in the Northwest and, and throughout the country. Increasingly, people want to thrive, simply put. And no one disagrees with, with thriving. No one disagrees with resilience. Clearly, as we face significant climate disruption, there's, there's a felt need to have more resilience in our communities. And at the same time, uh, we don't want to simply be responding to the prospect of disaster. We want to experience well-being holistically. So that's thriving. We could say a lot more about that. But New Stories has become kind of... Um, a central convener in the thriving, resilient communities movement. We have Thrive Napa Valley as a project. That's why I've been doing a lot of work there. We will soon have a Thrive San Juan Islands project. Great transition stories, although not called thriving or resilience, it's very much about how we can tell better stories that shape our sense of positive possibilities that we can then live into. And Resilient Japan is a project of Bob Stilger, so he's still involved. And quite a few others. There's the Kafunda Learning Center in Zimbabwe, which is a pioneering initiative that we took over from the Burkana Institute. And there are even more. There's the Thriving Resilient 
Communities Collaboratory, which is a kind of uh, circle of prominent organizations like Bioneers and Transition US and Post Carbon Institute that are all exploring what does it mean to transform the way we live to be more environmentally sustainable, socially just, and so on. You referenced uh, Duane Elgin's work. Tell us more about Duane Elgin's new story. Sure. Well, Duane is best known for his work around voluntary simplicity, and he right. wrote a book in the early 80s with that title, Voluntary Simplicity. He's also written a book called Awakening Earth and another called The Living Universe most recently. And I would say that The Living Universe is one of these great transition stories. In fact, if you go to greattransitionstories.org, that is one of the 13 or 14 that we have highlighted. When we come into relationship with uh, I would say our indigenous knowledge as well, which is another aspect of great transition stories. And, and remember that we're embedded in a web of life, that the entire planet and universe are alive around us. And Duane has had some profound transformative experiences in which he's directly experienced the living universe. There's a sense that uh, this is essential knowledge for living in a thriving and resilient way. So Duane has been a pioneer for the last 40 years exploring uh, not only the living universe narrative, but, but others. For instance, is humanity growing up? Are we um, collectively going through stages of growth like an individual human? And he's found when he travels around the world and asks audiences, what life stage do you think we as a social average are? We humans? Are we infants? Are we toddlers? Are we teenagers? Are we adults? Or are we elders? Something like 75 or 80 percent of the audiences, no matter where they are in the world, will say we're adolescents, we're teenagers. And if that's the case, then we have a lot of points of reference from our own individual experiences, and we can begin to understand the arc of humanity perhaps in a more life-affirming way. So sure, we have challenges right now, it's bumpy, and we can look forward to what may be a smoother adulthood, and we can consciously relate to our growth. What are some of the other key transition stories? You've mentioned uh, thriving communities, you've mentioned Dwayne Elgin's work, which is very beautiful on, on the living universe. Um, is the Gaia story another transition story as you frame it? Well, closest to the Gaia story, and I would say, yes, it is, but we haven't articulated it as mm -hmm. such, it would be planetary birth. Okay. So are we collectively going through a process, not just as humans on planet Earth, but as an entire planet in which mm, something is emerging? It's like the entire planet is giving birth to the next version of itself. And it's, again, a bumpy experience. There are contractions, uh, labor pains, but there's something to look forward to where humanity has, has emerged as a more conscious uh, collective self. I should have said that the Gaia hypothesis is the hypothesis that the Earth itself is a, is a meta-organism that is self-regulating. And so that was, so as you say, you're, you have this, this other version of the Earth giving birth to the Earth 2.0 or whatever. With the help of humans. With the help of humans. What are some other uh, key transition stories? Well, another that comes to mind first is transitioning to a holistic economics. Mm -hmm. Clearly, since 2008, we've experienced some economic turmoil, and it continues. It seems as if 
Uh, we're in a smoother period now economically, but the fundamentals don't seem to be dramatically improved. The housing situation, the backlog of foreclosures seems to be working itself out, but Europe still has great challenges. And fundamentally, there's the challenge of a debt-based economy. I'm not an economist. I'm not an expert really on anything that I might say today. But there is a sense that we could have a very different economic system that is based less on the creation of debt and the need to repay debt with interest, which means converting more and more and more natural resources into wealth. In other words, essentially destroying the environment so as to balance our books. And a holistic economics would take into account mm, gross national happiness, genuine progress indicators. Genuine progress indicators uh, are similar to gross domestic product but actually have negative values. So a car crash or a divorce or an illness actually count as negatives. So we are having a more complete sense of society's activity and we're measuring that uh, in a more nuanced way. Mm-hmm. So. The point is, and, and Len Lombard, again, is, uh, who is the visionary uh, behind new stories now, uh, a remarkable resident of Whidbey Island and a longtime contributor to Whidbey Island's um, remarkable uh, generative culture. The point is that collectively you have identified a whole series of new stories, as you say, 13 or so, on your website. And what they have in common from your perspective is that these are the stories we should be telling each other in order to become something other than the uh, train wreck uh, story that we are currently embarked on. I would say that that's fair. The original impulse for the Great Transition Stories project had a lot to do with the recognition that half of Americans uh, believe strongly in the Armageddon story and revelations as foretold in the Bible. And it seems like there are alternatives to that Mm -hmm. story that we might take equally seriously or at least consider that there is more than one story we could be telling. And if so, what do some of the other stories But you know, the Armageddon story, as told in the Bible... um, has its uh, ecological uh, corollary. Uh, And whereas uh, many uh, uh, people in the um, progressive community or whatever you want to call it, look down on um, those who believe the Armageddon story, nonetheless, in terms of the sense of impending dread or whatever, uh, the environmental story, which is science-based, has very interesting parallels to the Armageddon story, you know? I agree. In other words, there's not really all that much difference in some respects between living with the Armageddon story as your paradigm and living with the ecological collapse, you know, war, famine, all that stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to take it very seriously. And mm-hmm. whenever I hear about a great wildfire or some large natural disaster, mm-hmm. a flood or an earthquake, perhaps increasingly volcanic eruptions, mm-hmm. I think about that story and mm-hmm. it, it feels prophetic and important to me. Mm-hmm. 
that we take note of the, you could say, karmic effects of our actions mm -hmm. uh, to mix traditions. So we have a choice point, potentially. Mm -hmm. And I think even in the, the Revelation story, there is a, there's a choice. Mm -hmm. And so then the question becomes, well, what are those choices? And mm -hmm. what are some other stories that might lead to uh, mm -hmm. different outcomes? And, and might we choose those stories? And in the process, mm -hmm. you know, as we interact with the living universe more compassionately, might we change those same factors that are currently disrupting our mm -hmm. ecology? Now, when I look at your wonderful uh, list of things that you've been involved with, not only are you the executive director of New Stories, uh, including Great Transition Stories, and also we haven't mentioned the Whidbey Geodome Project, which our friend Rick Ingrassi has done, which is an educational tool, kind of a a geodome, like a yurt-sized uh, inflatable structure that with a professional uh, projection equipment, uh, you're able to project uh, a journey into the universe for 15 or 20 people at a time. It was at Bioneers. It travels around. It's an astonishing uh, thing. It's one of your projects also. One of the real core projects. A core project. I hope we'll talk more about it. And, and you have the thriving communities work that you've mentioned. Um, then uh, say a little bit about Occupy 100%. Right, so you're looking at my curriculum vitae mm -hmm. in which I had the courage to mention my involvement in the Occupy movement. Uh -huh. And my involvement with Occupy began in the fall of 2011 when I was invited to come down to Los Angeles to help the movement to tell its own story. Mm -hmm. And I connected with the CEO of a company called Citizen Global, mm -hmm. which had produced a platform specifically for Paul Hawkins' Blessed Unrest mm -hmm. to enable the meta movement to tell its own story. Mm -hmm. So a co-creative video storytelling platform with web-based editing functionality. Mm -hmm. Really cool stuff. And the CEO of Citizen Global, Stephen Starr, had the vision to offer this platform for free to the movement. Mm -hmm. And he invited me to help as a serial entrepreneur in the internet space with that mm -hmm. offering. I spent some time living at the Occupy LA camp in October, really just four days, mm -hmm. but enough time to feel that it was a beloved community at that time. And eventually that community dissipated and there was a police raid and, and that was the end of the encampment. But the energy of that time made a profound impact on me. I felt something very important was happening. There was a global upwelling, a groundswell, uh, in many forms, one of which was Occupy Wall Street, another the indignance in Spain, obviously the Arab Spring. So something important was happening globally throughout 2011. I, however, never felt the 99% meme, even though a friend of mine came up with it an investigative journalist uh, named David DeGraw, as I understand, was one of the first to use the 99% meme, mm -hmm. and it was very effective. So I have no beef with it, but I was most interested in what would happen if it was a movement for everyone that didn't define uh, itself in terms of opposition. Could we be for the welfare of the planet, the welfare, welfare even of the 1% of the very wealthy? And... Mm, in that way, might we discover greater empowerment for the vision? Because it seemed to me there was a glass ceiling on any 
endeavor that had division baked into its core, that Occupy Wall Street could never succeed if it was against the one percent. Uh, I know of one percenters who were extremely sympathetic, and uh, it seemed to me that we had an opportunity to be about the one hundred percent. And I feel that's still the case. And it, mm-hmm. the movement will be called something else now, but it's still there. You mentioned that you've been a, a serial entrepreneur in the in the tech space, and uh, you're the co-founder of you say Avanu or Avenue? Avenue. Avenue. Uh, developed innovative approaches to connecting the global heart through the internet through internet software, uh, semantic data modeling, and online communities of practice. And you developed custom software for the wisdom of communities, marketplace for good. Uh, semantic uh, computing framework, the Thrive platform, and online wisdom circles, and are working with Great Transition uh, as well. Uh, say a little bit about, is that project ongoing, the, the Avenue project? Well, this is probably the year when we'll close the company mm-hmm. as a corporate form, mm-hmm. but the, the insights and the various currents that have been embodied by Avenue continue. Mm-hmm. I've actually been sending out letters to the investors to uh, explain all of the incredible things that have happened as a result. Mm-hmm. But, but that set of uh, upsides does not include financial upside. We incorporated Daniel Jacobs, the mm-hmm. co-founding partner, and I, in 2006 with a vision to write software that would become the next MySpace and then the next Facebook. And very few companies actually do that. Mm-hmm. But each of us went on some kind of spiritual journey in the process, and we became more interested in writing software that uh, could, for instance, connect the global heart. Mm -hmm. The Share Your World platform, which eventually became the Garden of Global Consciousness, was a space in which a few hundred people, not a few hundred million, but Mm -hmm. a few hundred Mm -hmm. people, uh, shared their stories of healing and um, trauma Mm -hmm. and supported one another shared very authentically stuff that you wouldn't imagine or I couldn't imagine posting on Facebook today. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me there is still a huge opportunity for an online environment about healing Mm -hmm. and uh, sharing our soul's essence, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I see that happening more and more on Facebook. And I think it could, with some tweaks to Facebook's uh, design and Mm -hmm. functionality, it could support more intimate connection. Mm-hmm. But certainly in 2006 and seven and 2008 as well, the internet wasn't ready for what we were envisioning. So it, wasn't, it didn't turn out to be a great business proposition, but it was an enormous growth proposition for Daniel and for me and for you know, everyone else who participated. Mm-hmm. So you were born and raised, uh, I discovered in our conversations in, in D.C. and Northern Virginia. Um, began college in uh, Trinity College in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Uh, went up to Williams for a summer math program, and got so interested in their math program that you walked across the street to the admissions department, and said you'd like to stay, right? And uh, graduated summa cum laude in, in mathematics from Williams in 1995. Along the way there, you ran into is it Godel's? Girdle. Godel's theorem? Theorems. Mm-hmm. And that had a profound impact on you. 
Tell us why. Sure. So when I was at Trinity College, and there's a little bit of a backstory to that too. In high school, I did basically no homework, and I discovered my senior year that I really liked math. Mm-hmm. And Trinity College was kind enough to accept me. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the first two years of my college, I spent there taking essentially only math and physics because when I become interested in something, I become really interested, sort of maniacally <laughs> interested in whatever it is. Maybe a little less so now, but at that time, for sure. So I immersed myself in physics and math, and I had a sense that like, this was the path. I was going to go to graduate school and probably both, and you know, this was the path to truth as well. So in my spring semester, sophomore year, I encountered Gödel's theorem. Kurt Gödel was a logician in the 20th century of enormous capacity. And he proved that any formal system with at least as much complexity as arithmetic, and arithmetic is pretty basic, right? Not that it's easy to balance one's checkbook, but nonetheless, there aren't that many rules involved. So it doesn't seem like it would be very complex. But any formal system that is at least that complex or that simple contains, well, is either incomplete, in other words, there are well-formed propositions. So you can imagine some kind of probably complicated-looking mathematical proposition that can't be proved to be true or false. So that's interesting because to me, as a student of math and physics, thinking this was the road to really ultimate truth, suddenly the systems that I was interacting with couldn't, couldn't prove even statements that were native to those environments. And the corollary is that if such a formal system is complete, then it must contain contradictions, in which case, ah, there's some relatively simple, as in you know, not too much more complicated than arithmetic, system in which A and not A are both true. How could that be? How could it be that uh, a system designed to, in a sense, calculate truth values could, could contradict itself? Especially when in mathematics, a lot of proofs are based on the reductio ad absurdum uh, technique, which is assume something that you think is probably not true and see if um, taking that as an assumption and then a whole bunch of other manipulations, uh, you can arrive at a false statement, in which case you can say that that assumption is false. Well, in a system where A and not A is allowed, then you can't use that reductio ad absurdum technique. So... There are branches of mathematics where people don't use that technique, and there are constructivist mathematics in which mm, infinities are not allowed. And you know, there are all sorts of different flavors of mathematics to explore what happens if you do or don't accept one of these techniques. But um, I was no longer satisfied that mathematics had all of the answers. So where did that lead you when you saw that? Where, what has that door closed as a search for ultimate truth. What door opened? Well, I remained grateful for the vocabulary that I learned from math and physics. After encountering Gödel's theorems, I had the mathematical internship at Williams College. And it wasn't so much that I was taken with the math department at Williams, which is excellent, really world-class. So yes, I was interested, but, but I was decreasingly interested in math. So that presented me with 
um, a kind of contradiction. But I was even more taken by the natural environment of Williams College, which in the summer in Williamstown, which is the northwest corner of Massachusetts, is beautiful, completely gorgeous. It's called the Purple Valley, the Purple Mountains. And there's a certain quality of light late in the day when the mountains look purple. So I was more interested actually in the nature of the place than the institution there. But I didn't tell that to the admissions officers, of course. I walked in and said, I like this place. I have a 4.07 grade point average, um, good test scores, and do you think I could stay? And that was controversial uh, because I was way past the deadline. But they did ev eventually say yes, thanks to some math professors vouching for me. And once at Williams, I took almost no math or <laughs> physics classes. So that's what happened. You know, I, 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 <laughs> I uh, bamboozled the folks to let me in, and then I totally changed direction. I took geology, anthropology, linguistics, started taking French and a number of other things. And I but no I, longer... I hope they're proud of you nonetheless. Well, I, I hope so. Maybe one day they will be. Uh, but instead of then thinking I would go to graduate school, instead of focusing over the course of my college career, I, I did the opposite. I became more and more unfocused, mm -hmm. which, which kind of ruled out graduate school mm -hmm. for me. That was an important result of, of my um, you know, decision mm -hmm. to change course. But it was okay, because then, when I graduated not knowing what I was going to do, I was uniquely well-positioned to just fall into an internet company, which is exactly what happened. And then you did five or six internet startups. Right. Yeah. So somewhere along the line, you, uh, and I have your permission to talk about this because you said you're an open book, you said you were uh, diagnosed uh, uh, bipolar 2, mm -hmm. which is the less serious form of bipolar. And we were talking before our conversation about the whole history of extraordinarily creative people with uh, depressive conditions. In fact, and historically, it's considered that only people with depressive conditions have those heights of creativity, or at least some, some, some people. The melancholic mm -hmm. uh, uh, humor was considered the creative humor. Um, but, um, and then you have a very interesting story about how you saw that that explained a lot to you on the one hand, and also the story of how you worked your way through it. Could you tell us that story? Sure. Well, throughout my childhood, I was consistently, uh, I don't know if depressed would be the right word, but uh, sort of out of balance, feeling, you know, a kind of instability, some great days followed by some down days, and never, never feeling really at home or at peace. You said that you never felt the world was safe, right? Right, yeah. right. And, and that continued through high school, through college. I think one of the reasons that I was very successful in college was that by focusing on whatever it was, first math and physics, and then focusing on being unfocused, uh, I didn't have to think about whatever it was that was chronically troubling me. Not that I could have even named what was chronically troubling me, but there was a chronic trouble. And that continued even through the first internet company, which was very successful, Tripod. I wrote some software there, um, 
that became one of the top ten websites in the world. And a lot of other people contributed to that success. I don't claim that success for myself, but I contributed. I played an important role in the beginning. And then, because of that success, made some money, reinvented the lifestyle of my parents, bought a house, had two cars, including a Jaguar and a foosball table in my bedroom and fine furniture and all the rest. Um, had some great parties. And still, I was definitely not satisfied and definitely not happy. And the next company didn't go so well because most startup companies don't work, as I've, I've since learned. And so I took a sabbatical, drove around the country, took about, well, two or three months off uh, to find myself and, and didn't, but had a fabulous road trip. I started another company. And at this point, I had been in Williamstown for too long, probably. And um, I just remember kind of freaking out. And some friends of mine had an intervention because I had gotten very drunk one night and they were concerned about me. Uh, soon after that, I went to a psychiatrist who was known for treating bipolar people. And maybe somebody had suggested to me that that was a possibility, something for me to consider. So I went to this mm, appointment, sort of ready for a diagnosis, actually, uh, because I wanted to have some kind of explanation and she read down the DSM-4 criteria for bipolar 2. Based on our interview, she thought that maybe that was uh, the case. And I said yes to most of them, not all of them. There were some notable no's, like gambling and some other things. Uh, but I was very happy to be able to draw some kind of line in the sand to say everything before this diagnosis I can now explain. And now I'm going to, again, uh, change paths. Uh, so I was on lithium for five, let's see, almost six years. Mm -hmm. And I was diligent in taking my meds. And in 2007, late 2007, I encountered A Course in Miracles, which began a spiritual path for me. And for the next year plus, I very diligently applied myself, just like I had applied myself to math and physics and then all the rest, startup companies, to uh, spiritual growth. And I began to feel like it was working and that I didn't need the medicine anymore. And my mother was extremely concerned that I would stop taking the medicine because there are plenty of stories of uh, people who, who do that and then have terrible recurrences. And uh, I didn't feel that was the case with me, that I was making a conscious decision and I would wean myself off bit by bit and see how it went. So by October of 2008, I was no longer on the lithium, but I was feeling really good. I wouldn't say that I was like blissed out or overjoyed, but I actually hadn't experienced any kind of depression for about a year at that point. I haven't gone back to lithium, and my sense is if I were evaluated today without any prior knowledge of my diagnosis and history, um, I probably wouldn't be classified as bipolar 2. I suppose it's controversial whether one can ever not be something or, or whether one actually is the diagnosis. I'm not sure. I think that's an interesting question. But certainly my spiritual journey, with start, which started with The Course in Miracles and has since branched out uh, into many traditions, um, I would credit that with feeling 
a great balance and grounding in my life now that simply was not there before late 2007, 2008. And where did your spiritual journey branch out beyond the Course in Miracles? How would you describe its trajectory and where you are today? Well, I did the... I read the Course text, which is something like 700 pages of really fine print, twice in the first year, and I did the workbook for students, which is 365 daily lessons uh, in one year. So I actually did it every day for a whole year. And at the end of that process, well, the, the course ends with basically now you've just begun. Um, and the last few lessons kind of take the student into spaciousness and um, contemplative, meditative states where the mind is still and one is prepared to basically receive guidance from the inner voice. And I took that very seriously. And I found some learning partners in early 2010 in the Pacific Northwest, which I had started to frequent at that point. Uh, dear friend Ann Stadler, another Maryland overcast. And I was introduced to what might be called sourcing, which is you know, essentially deep listening using various techniques that um, you know, vary depending on the person. And I realized I, I did have a connection with, with source, if you will. I had uh, a connection to... Source being a, a synonym for the divine or... Sure. Whatever. I, I'd be willing to call it God, but I would want to say that this God is not a separate God. That, right. You know, it's, so there's source a is a nice word, actually. Mm -hmm. What is the lineage of sourcing? Does it, in other words, is it, a, is it a known vocabulary and movement, or is it something that just some of you informally call it? Well, I'm not aware of... Because it's lineage. beautiful language. Yeah. Well, I learned from Ann Stadler and Marilyn Overcast. And actually, Marilyn's story is very interesting. She was doing Tai Chi very diligently for 10 hours a day. Sounds familiar to me. And discovered that her body was being moved sort of by another force. And she started to do automatic writing and realized that she could hear very clearly mm, verbal information. And I don't get information that way, but meeting her clarified for me the innate potential of people to be in active relationship with... With the source. With the source. Of so how all. do you get information? Well, the first thing that I noticed in 2008 was the presence of uh, a judgment signal. So with The Course in Miracles, there's a lot of attention given to judgment and forgiveness. And so I began to notice when I was being judgmental or there was just judgment around me, uh, people who were behaving in a judgmental way, evidencing judgment towards one another, I would get an ache in my right temple. And that was consistent enough that I actually was able to associate that ache with judgment. So I called it the judgment ache. And every time judgment was present, whether in, inwardly or outwardly, then I would go through some kind of you know, forgiveness process internally which is essentially uh, directing love and you know, seeing the non-separation of all involved uh, and seeing a kind of learning situation playing itself out so that there is, um, you know, there's a purpose to whatever um, situation appears to be unloving. And the Course would say that anything that is unloving is a call for love. So hence, you know, the forgiveness is to 
pour my love into whatever it is. And that's a healing act. So eventually the, the judgment ache became less and less frequent and now is basically non-existent. I wouldn't say that I don't experience judgment or that there isn't judgment in the world around me, but, uh, but I don't think I need to be hit over the head, almost literally, to notice it. The second signal that I became aware of was something that I'd always had, which was a feeling uh, in my spine, a kind of vertical column of energy that would tell me, yes, 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 whatever you're doing right now, whatever direction you're going in, whatever you're thinking, like more of that, that that's where you need to be, you're in alignment. But I didn't have that language. Uh, I was busy creating internet companies that were supposed to take over the world. And, you know, that felt... Um, that began actually to feel out of alignment to me. But in any event, so I noticed that there was a yes signal in addition to this judgment ache. And then my left temple began to uh, ache from time to time, and I recognized that as a no. So I had a yes, I had a no. And when I encountered Marilyn Overcast and Ann Stadler and what they call fluent communication and sourcing, I realized that I could ask questions of my innate knowing and get yes-no answers. And if it wasn't a clear yes or a clear no, then there was a sense that there's more information. You know, ask a different question or, uh, you know, it's not as simple as you think, so ask a deeper question uh, or, you know, there's more information available. So, you know, become still and listen for additional uh, information and cues and, and see what shows up. And in our conversation over lunch, sometimes you would pause and go into that space of checking your intuition. Yes. I do that fairly often. So, for example, we were having a conversation, which I really enjoyed, in which, as, as I've mentioned, I've been studying archetypal psychology. For, and I'm like you. I go into these extremely intense periods of immersion that may last 10 years, or they may last a year or three months, but they're intense. And so I've been in an intense uh, study of archetypal psychology for the last seven months. And so I mentioned that most people with a spiritual orientation walk around with a mind map that says we have a physical being, an emotional being, a mental being, a spiritual being. And the spiritual being is seen as some, some as lifting up toward transcendence and toward you know, abstract moral values or pure moral values and, and it's a very beautiful, very real. And one f can source it through many, many different traditions. Uh, but in the Western tradition, and I don't know the Eastern traditions really well enough to say, there is a different mind map which includes not only spirit but soul. And this is very much Carl Jung's tradition, but it goes back to uh, uh, Ficino in the Middle Ages and back to... Uh, you know, early Greek uh, traditions and so on. And, and the distinction, which they held very strongly, was that, yes, spirit took you up into the transcendent, which was associated with male energy, not necessarily just men, but yang energy, whatever. But there was also soul, and soul was moist, and soul stayed close to the body, and soul... Uh, embodied all of the complexity of being a f human being. Soul was what felt things, what experienced things. Soul stayed close to the body. And so uh, in archetypal psychology and in the Western tradition, there is this dialogic relationship among many archetypes, but 
two of the key ones are spirit and soul. So we were talking about that, and um, and uh, and we were talking about the question because I'd raised the question of whether we could ever really get rid of shadow. And I was saying that we've never looked at Commonwealth as a spiritual organization, which it's not. It's a nonprofit where you go to work to try to do good work. Because in my experience, spiritual organizations almost always pool shadow. And I would rather live in an organization where shadow is woven through all of us, through recognition that all of us are radically imperfect and have both shadow and light in us. And so the conversation went on to the question of whether um, it was possible for, through sourcing or whatever, through practice, for shadow to dissipate completely. And I mentioned that from Jung's point of view, that couldn't happen, that there was always shadow. And in fact, if you look one way, you've got the shadow behind you. If you look the other way, there will still be shadow behind you. And so I put that out as a thought. And you said, well, let me check my intuition. And you sat there quietly for a little while. And then you said, you know, I actually don't believe that. You said, I, I actually believe that, yes, there's mud and, yes, there's that stuff. But it really is possible, we can at least imagine, that we move to that place where shadow isn't there anymore. So i just give you that as an example of you very, with great honesty, sitting there, not thinking about the question, but checking your intuition about it. Well, that's an important question that I've, I have been sitting with for the last couple of years. So I have thought about it, and I haven't made any real conclusions. My sense is that there are multiple levels, and depending on the level that we're experiencing, the personal, you know, individual, human self may always uh, experience shadow in the sense that you describe, where we look in one direction, we're not looking in another direction. Uh, but on another level, I think of the, the superorganism that consists of more than one person, which, which I feel we also are. So the identity that, that I experience, I think in a deepening way, is that I'm not only a personal self. And from the perspective of the, the transpersonal self, I would say it is not only possible to experience a state where there are not hidden regions uh, and certainly where we're not actively pushing away aspects of ourself, which to me is what creates you know, a really gnarly shadow. Mm, but you know, we are fully in relationship with our whole self. And I'm not saying that it's a, you know, an unbroken light of tranquility, uh, just that when we're in full relationship with our whole self, it's a different kind of experience, a more harmonious experience that may still have all kinds of contrasts. And from the transpersonal perspective also, we honor our wholeness. So there's a spectrum of being, there's a spectrum of experience, and those parts of ourselves that we maybe haven't frequented as often actually have an incredibly important role in our wholeness. So if we're honoring the whole of ourself, I don't know that I would still call it shadow. Yeah, that's fair, I think, that you don't necessarily call it shadow. And I think in archetypal psychology, 
what happens when you move from the personal. And, and, and after all, shadow is a Jungian term. In archetypal psychology, I'm not at all sure they use it. But nonetheless, as it moves to the transpersonal realm in archetypal psychology, what you get is mythology. So if you look at mythology in cross-cultural perspective, it's not at all necessarily harmonious. You have all these great archetypes of the gods or whatever who are very often quarreling with each other, arguing with each other, you know, fighting with each other, and so on and so forth. James Hillman, who's the founder of, the, of, the, of archetypal psychology, has this beautiful line where he talks about what archetypal psychology does is it loves and embraces all of human consciousness. And the description he has is of um, what one does from an archetypal psychology perspective is not to do what most psychologies do, which is to act as tools for self-management and the extension of the domain of, of, the e of ego control, but rather to enter into the um, forest of the archetypes and to be there to try to witness them without any judgment. Mm -hmm. But there are all kinds of beasts and beings in this forest. And so, um, so the forest, as I understand it, like real forest, not just as real as other real forests, but as, you know, forests in the physical sense of the term, uh, is, is actually filled with, uh, with conflict. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, the first thing that was arising for me is that from a certain perspective, the the fragmented perspective of human existence, which need not be the only way in which human existence can express, the gods as well are in conflict. Mm -hmm. My sense is, as, and I don't want to present this as absolute truth, and again, I'm not expert in anything that I'm saying, but my sense is that as we do the forgiveness work from a course perspective, or as we come into non-dual awareness, which is in the course, but, but subtly. And I, I, I'm much more these days uh, interested in mm, the overtly non-dual traditions. That's been my exploration for the past two years. Then something has changed for me personally and for those I know around me as I've seen more and more in an undivided way. I'm experiencing that there's less conflict. So my sense is that actually the level of peace, the level of stillness that is experienced is an indicator, but that also I wouldn't say that the whole self doesn't include all of these aspects which can show up uh, potentially in gruesome ways. If you look at the, uh, the depictions of gods in the, the Tibetan tradition, yeah. for instance, you know, they're pretty frightening looking. Yeah. Um, so it may be that they become potential Whereas, and what is expressed is the peace aspect. And I, I suppose I wouldn't say within uh, you know, a non-dual perspective that the peace aspect, the peaceful aspect is more true than anything else, but certainly my experience has been it's more prevalent. Mm -hmm. no, I, I think I would agree with that. Among your interests, you describe, and this relates to this, 
because you talked about the, the fragmented aspect, you, so your interest is beautifully put. You said defragmenting and tending the garden of consciousness, connecting and healing the global heart, organizational development and movement building, emergence self-organizing systems, deep listening for next steps, uh, songwriting and poetry. Well, you didn't put in poetry, but poetry, songwriting, the French language were some of the other interests. But so that connects with what we're talking about here in a very real way. But I suppose, and I don't know, um, you know, one of the things that for me is true is that I don't privilege spiritual, uh, the spiritual paradigm over the secular paradigm. I just don't, it is not my experience that people who are, quote, spiritual are better human beings, and it is not my experience that they're more evolved, you know? It's, it's just like, you have the whole continuum of kindness and evolution and wisdom and mistakes and everything, both in people who identify with a spiritual orientation and people who identify with a secular or scientific or nature-based orientation or whatever you want, or any combination of those. And uh, I think one of the categorical mistakes that progressives or people involved with, uh, you know, creative consciousness frequently make is a tendency to privilege um, essentially a romantic, uh, utopian, idealistic vision of life. And I find myself at this point in my life, and I'm, you know, 69, and you're how old? 39. 39. So it's a nice 30-year stretch there. I find myself, I said to somebody the other day that if I had a church it would be the church of Bob Dylan and Shakespeare. And the reason I say Bob Dylan and Shakespeare is because both Dylan and Shakespeare have within themselves all the voices. They don't just have the pretty voices. They don't just have the beautiful voices. They don't just have the transcendent voices. And Dylan, you know, I love his album Modern Times, which I've been listening to a lot. Dylan even in a single verse, is constantly flipping between, you know, the beautiful, the aspirational, and the, the dark. You know, light, dark, light, dark, light, dark. Uh, you know, many other songwriters do the same thing. But Shakespeare, of course, you have that. And so, to me, I'm sort of coming to this place where, yes, I agree with you that, in fact, practice contemplative practice because I need that peace and quiet. You can go up into those realms where, um, where the conflicts are less prevalent and there's more peace and so on and so forth. But the completeness of our humanity includes all the voices. And Thich Nhat Hanh talks about that when he talks about imagining yourself into the place where you understand the pirates who board the ships off Vietnam and kill the women and children, throw everybody overboard. You know, the sense that we don't have that within ourselves, yes, we do have mm -hmm. it within ourselves. And to me, at least, the continuous awareness of the complexity, the tragedy, both light and dark, I find more grounded than the awareness that I take refuge in spirit whenever I can get it together to get up there.
Well, I would agree with that. There's a quote that I love. I don't know who said this. The preference for nirvana over samsara is samsara. There's a, a duality in wanting to escape into some kind of nirvanic castle. Yes. And my sense, like I said before, that there's a glass ceiling on any system in which there is a division based yeah, into that's the beautiful. core. I would say that applies here too, right in the heart of spirituality. That's beautiful. And so I would equally embrace whatever is showing up. If the nirvanic castle has shown up, you know, lovely. Lovely. If I'm on the street and um, a homeless man comes up asking for help, lovely. Truly lovely. Maybe more lovely, actually. Mm-hmm. And if somebody is violent towards me, which I haven't had happen in a long time, I have a feeling that at least part of me would say lovely. And that because I would engage that person in a different way, there would be a different outcome. And that's what I think leads to peace. Because when that just energy of love is present, it seems impossible that what we call unloving energy could could persist for long. It might persist for a Mm -hmm. while. so you, you, I want to shift here because uh, there's so many rich avenues of conversation with you, which I'm so grateful for. But one of the, theor- the things that you're working on now, which is particularly interesting of all these different organizations that you are engaged with, uh, is a theory of transformation and a, a vision of a conscious ecosystem of conscious organizations. So let's start with the theory of, of transformation. Um, and I'm going to read the, the list of things that you describe on your website as core concepts. Scout and identify what's emerging. Notice and articulate the deeper patterns. Cultivate whole, undivided perception. Support the whole becoming visible to itself. Connect and illuminate the fractal facilitate systemic communication, honoring wholeness in motion and tending in a wholly honoring direction, embody appreciative patterns, principles, practices at all levels of the fractal, individual, organizationally, and collectively, call forthright action through deep listening and collective wisdom practices, amplify what's working through feedback loops of clear perception, connection, communication, intention, and embodiment. Now, there's a lot of beautiful language there and a lot of beautiful thoughts. But the part that I resonate most deeply with, because it's actually how I understand the work at Commonweal, is the part of scout and identify what's emerging, notice and articulate the deeper patterns, cultivate a whole undivided perception, and support the whole becoming visible to itself. Those four... I've really for 36 years, and I mean, I wouldn't have put it in that language, but um, working in this place where we, at any given time, we have about a, about a dozen projects, it's always seemed to me that the way I put it was that my job was to listen to the universe and see what it wanted to happen here next, and then try to recognize the people who were supposed to do that with us and support them in their work. And so I love, because it fits so much for me, this beautiful articulation of a theory of transformation. Well, thank you. Yeah. So say more about the theory of transformation for you. Uh, 
Is, did you say this is a core part of what you're working on now? Yes, and this articulation just emerged about a month ago, but it's what I've been living into for the last three years. When I first started to visit the Pacific Northwest in 2009, after an incredible conference on Cortez Island in British Columbia, where I met many very inspiring people. Was this the summer conference? The summer gathering. Summer gathering, headed by Rick and Grassi and Peggy Taylor. Yes. Also of, uh, who've been leading it on on, uh, Cortez uh, for 27 years, and also lead the winter gathering at the Whidbey Institute on Whidbey. Right. 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 So I was exposed to whole new possibilities, and having seen that there was a lot more that I didn't know, kind of like with Gödel's theorems, whoa, there's a lot more that we can't understand through math. So now I'm in exploration mode. Uh, I entered exploration mode, especially in the Pacific Northwest, and I began to scout without really knowing what I was doing at the time because I don't think I was you know, fully conscious of what I was doing, but I was definitely responding to a, heart, uh, a heartful impulse. And so I, I went and had conversations with people who were inspiring me. Rick Ingrassi, uh, Peggy Taylor, Stephen Schwartz, Fritz and Vivian Hull, a lot of people on Whidbey Island that we both know. Uh, on the mainland, on the Seattle side, I began to encounter organizations like the Compassionate Action Network and the Happiness Initiative, before it was called the Happiness Initiative, and others. And I was really amazed mm, Well, on Whidbey Island, I was amazed that there were so many people doing this incredible, heartful work who weren't necessarily talking to one another. I felt that the south end of Whidbey Island was very fragmented, so it became my mission to connect the global heart. Uh, And there's a story behind that, which basically goes, I noticed that Twitter was connecting the global brain, in a sense, with these short, uh, rapid-fire, synaptic transmissions. What could connect the global heart? And I hadn't identified any technology that could really do that apart from what I had been trying to build. But I didn't feel that I had really succeeded in connecting the global heart that way. So I began to embody connection by literally just going around and putting a lot of miles on the car. And my carbon footprint has not been a good one, I'm afraid to say. But in the process of weaving with the Whidbey Institute and other organizations on South Whidbey, I was bringing people into relationship and I felt that there was a larger whole that could emerge out of that. And that larger whole included organizations on the mainland like the Compassion Action Network and what became the Happiness Initiative uh, and others, and also down in the Napa Valley, what became Thrive Napa Valley in 2011. And without knowing how all of these pieces fit together, I just had a very strong sense that they did and they do. And So there was some kind of relationship that I was cultivating with emergence where I had to become very comfortable not knowing but trusting in that inner voice which I had learned to listen to and trusting also the external signals of rightness, you know, synchronicities, for instance. So... Now, there's... Go ahead. Yeah, so I haven't really addressed your question about the theory of transformation, but that speaks to, you know, two years plus of scouting and noticing patterns. And then... Uh, perceiving the wholeness, it became important to connect the whole to itself. And Meg Wheatley, and I think others have uh, statements along the lines of, if a system is unwell, connected to more of itself. Say that again? If a system is unwell or unhealthy, connected to more of itself. That's very helpful. 
So I decided that was something that I would experiment with. And last year, I helped to organize something called TOES, the Thriving Organizational Ecosystem Summit, which brought together new stories, the Whidbey Institute, the Cascadian Center, which is another larger retreat center in Mount Vernon, Washington, CAN, the Compassionate Action Network, the Happiness Initiative, Compassionate Seattle, and, and still more, into a, a two-day retreat to explore what is it that we could do together that we can't do separately. Is this at the Whidbey Institute? At the Whidbey Institute. Mm -hmm. And moreover, what is it that we can do together? What deep collaborations might emerge here that nourish us individually so that we are sustainable and even thriving because we're in some kind of molecular relationship with one another? So we're not talking about becoming a monolithic or a monoculture organization, but becoming a conscious field, conscious of itself and its different aspects. Out of the toes gathering, and there'll be more, so this is toes one, came the Compassion Games, a, collect a substantial collective impact in which all of these organizations collaborated for one month to mm, essentially run a series of activities to show that Seattle is a compassionate city. And there's a backstory there, which is Seattle affirmed the Charter for Compassion in 2010 and became the first compassionate city. The city of Louisville affirmed, I think, a um, little more than a year later. And Louisville had a very successful week-long uh, set of volunteer events and then said, hey, Seattle, we challenge you to do better than us. So in a friendly way, we responded with compassion games, survival of the kindest. And it was a big win. So it was a profound underscoring of the importance of coming together into these deep collaborations in which the larger system is connected and conscious of itself. And then systemic communication, which is part of point four there, is what we need in order to sustain that consciousness of our larger organism, of the superorganism. Now you mentioned in our conversation over lunch that you had the experience that very often you came into organizations at a time when they might be moving beyond, even though they sought to embody these values, there had been conflict or various things had been happening, and that somehow you seemed to show up at a point at which you were very humble about this, um, which is always lovely, um, at which things began to clarify. And uh, so one of these, uh, as I remember, is the Compassionate Action Network International. So tell us a little more about the Compassionate Action Network, because you said there's a tremendous amount of energy around it. So tell us about that. Sure. Well, the origin goes back to the Seeds of Compassion in 2008, when the Dalai Lama visited Seattle for five days, and there were a number of large events, which I think brought something like 160 or 70,000 people out in spring, and somehow miraculously it was 80 degrees and sunny, so you know, it was a blessed time. And I wasn't there yet, so this is secondhand, but nonetheless, a powerful series of events in the stadiums that filled up with parents and children learning about compassionate parenting and hearing the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu and others speak to these points. And it was so successful, there was a desire to continue uh, cultivating the energies that were gathered at Seeds of Compassion. About a year later, the Compassionate Action Network was formed 
by a number of the people who had been involved in organizing seeds. Now, to, to put together, on pretty short notice, as it happened, something as substantial as the Seeds of Compassion really strained a lot of relationships. It was, um, it was a big push, and although it was successful, it was challenging interpersonally, as I understand. So there was some, I would say, my perception anyway, is there was some disturbed energy that had been stirred up that was then baked into um, the Compassionate Action Network from the beginning. So the organizational mission, of course, is to, um, is to support and encourage compassionate behavior and to create cultures of compassion was one of the early mission statements. But to really do that, we had to embody compassion ourselves. I joined the board in October of 2011. Interestingly, the same day I got the first call from uh, Occupy Los Angeles, I was interviewing uh, as a prospective board member. And I was aware that there were interpersonal conflicts, and there's no need to go into details like any organization. Yeah, yeah, we're not interested Um, in detail. But soon after I joined, uh, things did seem to clarify. Now, because I wasn't a board member previous to my being there on the board, I didn't necessarily have the same kind of insight or visibility into what was happening. But it felt to me like some kind of healing process was underway. And the people who had been in conflict in various ways were, were peacefully kind of spinning off into other activities, all of which are still very much related. So, uh, so relations are better than ever, actually, now. And we went through a process of changing uh, executive directors in a very graceful way. Um, and then the Charter for Compassion, which is a marvelous TED Prize uh, project. So Karen Armstrong, who's a, a noted world expert on comparative religions, and the Golden Rule had a wish uh, to create a Charter for Compassion that would really unify all of the world's religions and uh, spiritual, moral, ethical traditions around the golden rule, because that's something that seems to be common to all of these religions and traditions. Uh, She won the prize, $100,000, went into uh, creating this document, and the Charter for Compassion project kind of stuck with Ted for a while because Karen didn't have her own organization. Well, finally, last year, the Charter for Compassion merged into the Compassionate Action Network, in part because CAN had healed to the point where we could receive something as beautiful and important. So what, is, what are the indices of the energy you see around the Compassionate Action Network? What, what's actually happening that you, makes you describe it as so Sure. Powerful. So there's the, there's the sense of it being alive. There's the mm-hmm. sense of a global movement emerging. In addition to Seattle being a compassionate city, and I mentioned Louisville as well, I believe Houston, which is the fifth largest metro area in the country, just affirmed the charter. And the way that works is the mayor and the city council unanimously personally sign the Charter for Compassion and then issue a proclamation. Uh, so is there the any evidence that, that signing these charters and having these signatures actually affects anything real? Well, once, okay, with Louisville. I mean, I think it's lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the question is, I can imagine one of our many righteous, skeptical listeners saying, what does it really mean? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give you the example of Louisville. Yeah. The mayor, Greg Fisher, campaigned on a pledge to make Louisville the compassionate heart of America. He uh-huh. was elected, uh-huh. probably for that and other reasons. Uh-huh. But nonetheless, he was elected, and then pretty much immediately the city affirmed the charter and became Compassionate City number five or six, something Mm -hmm. like that. And 
Then they had this week-long volunteer event, which brought, I think, 90,000 people oh, out really? to volunteer. Mm-hmm. So making compassion a priority, it changes the conversation. Uh, people can rally around it. You can organize around it for sure. Um, but in addition to compassionate cities, which is kind of a high-level concept, mm-hmm. there are now compassionate schools in Pakistan. For political reasons, it hasn't been possible for cities to affirm the charter. Mm-hmm. But schools have. So there's a network of compassionate schools, I think a dozen or more at this point. And in Pakistan, we had the recent example of a, a young girl who was blogging about life under the Taliban getting shot, and she is recovering. So it's more than a hot-button issue there, compassion. It's very relevant on the ground. Mm-hmm. So one idea that I'm having now is to... Um, have schools, for instance, in the Napa Valley become compassionate schools. And there's interest in this. And then to twin those schools with schools in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And then there's an, a cultural exchange that is happening where the students are sharing their life experiences and wisdom. Here's another example that doesn't fall under the uh, Charter for Compassion banner so much, but you may have heard of um, We Love You, Iran, the video campaign in which a young Israeli web designer or graphic designer created a sign that says, we love you, Iran, we will not bomb you. Yes, I've seen this that. This was at the time when it, it seemed like perhaps mm-hmm. some kind of military action against Iran by Israel was imminent. Mm-hmm. And this act went viral, and I think millions of people emulated it, both in Israel but also in Iran. So there was this mutual exchange that may have prevented a war. We don't know. So one of the things you said was really emerging as important for you is what you call organizational non-duality. Is that the same thing as what you describe as your interest in a conscious ecosystem of conscious organization? Well, certainly it's related. And I'm still figuring out what organizational non-duality means, but my intuitions around that, and I never say it the same way twice, but there's something about seeing an organization not only as a whole living system, but seeing it as indivisible uh, internally and externally. So let's take new stories, for example, because that's my little Petri dish. You know, I'm an individual within new stories. There are a bunch of people. There are seven projects that are new stories projects that are fiscally sponsored, but that are you know, in some kind of resonant relationship with one another. So there's a, there's a whole kind of uh, there's a we of people and a we of projects. Then there's New Stories, the container. Then there's the ecosystem of organizations around New Stories. And you know, then there's the, the global and the, the cosmic levels. It seems to me that all of these layers you know, are not separate, first of all. And second, that there's some you know, resonance between the phenomena that appear at these different orders of um, complexity. And we can see within an organization this interplay of wholeness, and we can honor that. And when conflict arises, suppose there's some kind of interpersonal um, issue, if we can see that all participants are really playing an honored role in some kind of process that's working itself out, it's working itself out globally, you know, we see global conflict, we see conflict within organizations, we see conflict within our own minds. And my sense is it's really the same phenomenon at all levels. Something about seeing in that way, seeing in an undivided way, is healing and creative. So when I go into an organization and healing seems to happen, although I can't prove this, my sense is it's partly because mm, you know, I'm seeing the organization as whole and healing. 
and the part of me that is the totality, because I don't see that I'm separate, you know, as a person from the totality, responds to the impulse of non-division. And then there's an external harmony that, that emerges, perhaps not instantaneously, although I wouldn't rule that out. Spontaneous healing seems to occur. Mm. So organizational non-duality for me is like seeing there's some kind of circle you might draw, and that's the organizational boundary. But it's really not, um, it's not a, a solid line. It's very permeable, and it's very temporary. It's just the lens through which we're looking at the entire universe in this moment. You know, our listeners can't see you, but my felt sense of your presence is that um, I sense the gift that you bring into the organizations that you join that help them begin to see that wholeness in themselves and and move them beyond a conflict model. so say just a little more about um, what you mean by a conscious ecosystem of conscious organizations. Um, in other words, we started this part of the conversation talking about organizational non-duality, and you said it was related, but somewhat distinct from a conscious ecosystem of conscious organizations. So is the conscious ecosystem of conscious organizations what you're trying to create through the whole set of communities that you're bringing together in different ways. In other words, it seems to me that, and you said that whereas Twitter organizes the world mind, that you hadn't seen how to connect the world heart from a software perspective. So you'd started enacting that in your relationships in South Whidbey Island, going around and seeing everybody and bringing people together in the way you describe. Um, So it is, in effect, the whole weaving of organizations that are seeking to be conscious organizations into an ecosystem of conscious relatedness. Is, Is that, do I understand that correctly, is what you're trying to do? Right, so that is very much what seems to be my work in the world at this point. Right. So I see that there are different Zoom levels. There's the Zoom level of individual mind, and we meditate and we explore our minds. And then there's the Zoomed out level of you know, in collective people. But I'm interested right now in the, the organizational collectives. And I feel like there's a rich field emerging that is similar to organizational development, which emerged in the 70s and 80s strongly, but organizational ecosystem development, where we're not just cultivating an internal organization and trying to make it more efficient, we're cultivating an ecosystem, an ecology of organisms that can feed one another, and perhaps that can only really be thriving if they are in that conscious relationship. So what are the principles of organizational ecosystem development? That's an inquiry that I'm in right now. That's definitely a growing edge for me. And others, in fact. Um, And it, of course, relates to organizational non-duality. We want to see the wholeness of the ecosystem. But I feel like it's one Zoom level of of the really big picture. Mm -hmm. As we begin to move toward a close, um, what haven't I asked you about or what comes to your mind as uh, 
something you'd like to share with us as uh, sort of the heart of uh, where you are in your life right now? Well, if you phrased a question, you might ask me what what's next or where do I feel this is leading? And then in response, I would have to say, I have very little sense of what's next or where this is leading. I have a sense that, well, here's a quote from Nisargadatta, which I just love. Such is my nature that all ends in joy. So I know, I mean, I would say as much as I can know anything and have certainty that... Um, you know, this process, whatever this process is, culminates in joy. So that's extremely reassuring. Now, how we get there and the twists and turns, the long and winding road, I'm not exactly sure. Another sense I have is if I can be fully present, and that's a practice, and I don't feel that it's a practice that I've fully mastered. I mean, I, I feel the mastery percolating all around. Like, you know, in, in, quote, enlightenment, it's, it's there, and, you know, we all are tapped into it, and we can open up to it, and it can express through us. So I feel like I'm learning to be the opening through which, you know, spirit, source, God, you know, consciousness can act ever more potently. So I'm going to continue cultivating that opening. Mm. My sense is that the next steps just tend to announce themselves in that process, that the next steps are always within reach. If it's not within reach, it can't possibly be the next step. So I'm focused really just on you know, now plus one, sort of, like in chess. It, you, it's possible to play an excellent chess game thinking only one move ahead. Mm. So what might that look like? I have a feeling, given just the way the currents have been moving, that there will be a toes too this year. There will be additional collective impacts. Toes being the thriving organizational ecosystem summit that will be working with indigenous people. Uh, we'll actually, hopefully, remember that we're all indigenous. And I've submitted a grant proposal which uh, is being well received for a thriving and resilient Salish Sea Basin project where the thriving communities, there are about a dozen communities in the Pacific Northwest that are considered thriving communities because they're participating in this ecosystem around the Thriving Communities Conference and in conscious relationship to one another. Like Bellingham knows what's happening in Port Townsend, knows what's happening on South Whidbey Island, etc. And it's not just islands, there are some urban centers as well. So there's the Thriving Communities field and there's something called the Salish Sea Alliance of indigenous peoples all around Puget Sound and the Strait of Georgia up into British Columbia, they're becoming self-aware, I would say. There's a lot of healing going on in the native communities. And the native peoples and the, for lack of better language, the non-native peoples are starting to connect in profoundly co-creative ways uh, and so my sense is this organizational ecosystem work, this, this deepening sense of wholeness is going to express bioregionally, at least for me, from my perspective, in the Pacific Northwest, in the form of thriving and resilient Salish Sea. And we're going to be hosting convenings this year, and it may link in with Idle No More and Protect the Sacred, which are global movements of indigenous peoples who are uh, claiming their rights to protect nature and say no uh, to oil pipelines and coal trains and you know, other problematic behaviors that in our collective unconsciousness humanity has been inflicting upon the planet. 
So I anticipate that this process will have very real positive impacts uh, on the bioregion in terms of environmental health and restoration. And one vision that I love comes from Chief Phil Lane Jr., hereditary chief of the Dakota and Chickasaw peoples. And he sees the thriving, particularly the thriving Salish Sea vision as the fulfillment of ancient prophecies in which the people of the earth come back together under the tree of life and share all that they've learned during this period of wandering and separation and share their gifts and remember their prior unity, their, their wholeness, and then live in that way together bioregionally and ultimately may that spread to be globally. That would be my vision for what's next. And it's certainly what I'm working towards. So when I reflect back on this conversation, I hear uh, a remarkable piece of work, um, both growing out of your own personal story from uh, mathematics to internet startups to uh, engagement with uh, uh, the complexity of the great challenges of our times, uh, now leading you to this role, leading the, the New Stories Project, and working from the New Stories Project, the New Stories organization, um, seeking to build a a conscious ecosystem of conscious organizations uh, involved in what Thomas Berry calls the great work of our time. Um, and uh, a wonderful combination of um, uh, sophistication about organizations and organizational change and witness uh, with a spiritual journey uh, from uh, not feeling comfortable in yourself all through your childhood and uh, college years to um, discovering, you know, that at least you fit the criteria for bipolar two. Uh, took the lithium for a number of years, found the Course in Miracles. Um, it was really transformational and enabled you to um, uh, to taper off and end the, the lithium uh, uh, medicine. Uh, and then the Course in Miracles in turn expanded uh, in a wide range of directions that you term all the different ways that we can do sourcing, which is to connect ourselves with, with uh, the divine or with whatever else one wants to call it. And that in turn led to a, a sensory awareness of communications from your own body, which um, enabled you more and more clearly to differentiate between judgment and forgiveness uh, and to go on from that to differentiate between yes and no uh, when you were considering things, which I actually witnessed as you dropped into that space in our conversations. Uh, so the combination of... Uh, the personal journey and the journey into uh, what many people who know you regard as um, your own form of genius, which is uh, a genius in being the person who is weaving and connecting these uh, communities of shared intention together.
So Jeff Vanderkloot, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been deeply gratifying and uh, just a great joy to be here today and to have this profound conversation with you. Thank Wonderful. you so much. Wonderful for me, too. <laughs>